This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, our town hall featuring four candidates running for Spokane City Council. Spokane is the second largest city in the state, and their elections matter. Current council member Betsy Wilkerson was appointed in 2020 and is running for her seat in District 2. Luke Jasmine III is running in District 1, and Zach Zapone and Lucretia Hill are running in District 3. Join us for this conversation that was recorded live on Zoom on the evening of July 22nd. Thank you to everybody for joining us tonight. We are so excited to have such a tremendous lineup of candidates with us. And we're very excited to hear from folks in Spokane and to really talk about issues that people care about there. So let's dive in and we will meet our first candidate. Uh, As Kat said, Betsy Wilkerson was appointed to the Spokane City Council in 2020 to serve the second district. And she sits as chair of the Finance and Administration Committee. She is the second African-American woman to serve as a council member in the city's 147-year history. Councilmember Wilkerson is the owner and administrator of Moore's Assisted Living, a family business, and she also sits on the board of directors at the Carl Maxey Center. She is running for election to her seat, and we are so glad that she is here. Councilmember, how are you doing doing tonight? I'm doing fine, and thank you so much for having me this evening. Well, we're so grateful that you could join us, and I thought you would be the the perfect person to give a little bit of an overview for those who are watching or listening outside of Spokane. Tell us a little bit about your city. What are some things that people should know about Spokane? Well, first of all, Spokane is the second largest city in the state of Washington that sometimes get lost with Tacoma, but we still hold that position. We are 88% white. Um, That is something that's as an opportunity and a challenge into itself. We have like 6% African-Americans we are running at about 7% Latinx people. And we also have, uh, we now have a new category of biracial. So it's kind of interesting. There is a significant population of undocumented and Marshallese that live in the city of Spokane. Talk about invisible. That's our population that is invisible and that we have not folded into our community as best we can. So how do we open Spokane up wider for everyone? I keep saying the house is big enough for everybody. If it's not big enough, we can add on and remodel. I know the community is a huge part of your your platform. It's what you stand for. And we'll get into that in just a second. But, you know, something that I hear a lot when the subject of Spokane comes up is that it's a blue dot, right, in a red area. People say it's much bluer than they would have thought. But other people uh, say that, no, Spokane is much redder than they would have thought. How do you see it? I really do see it as a blue oasis uh, in the middle of a red desert, and it really is Spokane City proper. Once you get outside the city limits, it starts going pink and then it goes to red. And we just have not been able to make those inroads and connect with that population with what their needs are compared to what the needs of the urban core is. So yeah, it is a blue oasis. You know, that's why they say there's two Washingtons. Yeah. There's the west side and the east side. So we are the holdout. But you know what? The good thing is, is that we, Spokane, sit in the position of uh, access and power and legislative and all those things that can really make a difference. That sits in the city of Spokane. And so, therefore, that's why I'm always saying we have to really lean in and lead and be progressive because we are the voice that will speak for those that don't speak for themselves. You're kind of anticipating my next question, which is, oh. you know, as we had, no, it's a good thing. Uh, as, okay. as as Kat and I both mentioned, you were appointed to the council. You were one of 37 people who were considered, and you ultimately won out. I'll just ask you, what initially made you want to serve on the city council? I have to tell you, initially, I didn't think this was the place for me. But I had come up through a lot of nonprofits and served on boards, and I realized to make change you have to be at the table where decisions are being made. So for me, it was important 
to represent underrepresented voices, to be able to change the conversation and the discussion and also the outcome. I will tell you the kicker was my grandkids said, run granny run. It's like, oh my gosh. So they were the most excited about me doing this. And they kept asking, are you on city council yet? Are you on city council yet? So you know what that really brought home to me, not only to lead, but to inspire and give young people a vision of what can be for them. And I think that's just as important as any policy that I could help write in the city. Run, Granny, run. You are an inspiration. Run, Granny, run. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of your accomplishments during your, your, your tenure here. So as chair of the Finance and Administration Committee, you approved public funding for uh, what is called attainable housing. Some people refer to it as affordable housing. What if you could just talk about right. the scope of the affordable housing problem in Spokane and a little bit about some of your work on the issue? So... We say Spokane, but we know it is nationwide. And really many of our challenges are not unique to Spokane. They are everywhere. We passed the House Bill 1590, where we charged that one-tenth and one-tenth percent tax. So your tax went from 8.9% to nine. That money is set aside for housing. Is the most resources that we have that we can deploy without all the strings attached to it. And so part of those funds will go for programs and services to help people when they get into attainable housing, because you just don't buy a house. There's a lot more that goes with it. Also, looking at this ARP money that's coming, how and can And I should just jump in and say, you mean the American Rescue Plan, the money that is you, coming from the federal you. government, right? That's a government hang-up, those acronyms. I yeah, yeah, yeah. But how we can identify those monies to go to projects that are ready, that will make a difference in the next year, not three years down the road, but in the next year. So leaning into that, and I say leaning in because sometimes it's to knock things over and sometimes it's to help stand things up uh, in city government. That's the position I see myself in going back and forward. So partnering with the nonprofits, uh, a great partner has been Habitat for Humanity. They got a great program. And to really get that word out there, the frustrating thing has been housing has been so siloed in how it's been approached. So you got developers and they're doing their thing and you got realtors, they're doing their thing and you got the nonprofits, they're doing their thing. But really in this day and age, the people that they serve is really crossing over. So you could be in a nonprofit housing situation and then you get a little money, you go to the other continuum of housing or your resources could have changed and now you're applying for subsidized or assistance on housing. So it's very fluid, the people that we're trying to help. And so we really need to keep that open mind of the continuum of housing, whether it's transitional from folks coming off the streets, getting into it to the point where they can buy their own home and start building their own wealth. And being able to pull those resources together. Partnership is the word that's been left out in a lot of these conversations because we can leverage those dollars. Well, something else that you're hinting at here is 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 what you and I spoke about in depth mm -hmm. when we were preparing for this, which is uh, the power of community. And you've talked about mm -hmm. wanting city leadership that is much more inclusive of underrepresented community members. You're talking about that here a little bit. I wonder if you can go a little bit further. What does that look like in practice to you? Well, in practice, it looks like the people who are on this screen who are running for office. This is the largest numbers of minorities that have run for a city council in the history that I can remember. So that's a start. But also we are standing up committees from communities of color. So there are organizations that have been doing the work, but they've been left out or on the sideline. So we're looking at that leadership and bringing them into the fold to help make good decisions and move that forward. My example would be like the Carl Maxey Center. Um, Yes, I am board chair, 
but there are six other amazing board members who are serving in leadership positions in the city. That would be the same with the Hispanic business professionals. Some are already serving in leadership, but there are others who are ready to step up and fill that space and represent and have that voice. And truly, the city wants to hear from them now. I don't know what it took, and we could speculate about that, but they're ready to listen. And so we have to be ready to step up and say yes. Uh, hold that f- thought for a second, because I have a question that that is going to relate to that directly. But I want to welcome uh, Lisa Brown. She is director of Washington State Department of Congress and, of course, uh, former congressional candidate and uh, a guest on my podcast. Welcome to you tonight. We're so glad that you could join us. So just uh, following up on, on what you said, council member, um, as I mentioned at the top, you are the only uh, you're only the second African-American woman in 147 years to serve on the city council. And the first was 20 20 years ago, I wonder what what does leadership look like in communities of color in Spokane, and how do you see more leaders like you coming up behind you? Well, I will tell you currently it is a privilege and a weight because the expectations are so high on both sides, from the communities of color that I represent uh, to the uh, to dominant cultures. Like, well, Betsy, are you going to represent us too? Are you just representing people of color? So really looking at tempering expectations and moving things forward. I welcome and hope that more people of color will step into this role. It is is and can be messy in politics and people can be pretty nasty as we all know uh, when you're in these leadership roles because you become the target of their anger and realizing and reminding folks, yes, I am black, but I do not speak for all black people. Just like one other candidate may not speak for all white people or not all Latinx folks. So really it's education along with leadership and really the biggest part and the biggest role I have played is actually showing up. That's important to the community. Further related to what you're speaking about, and this uh, we touched on this when we were preparing, was uh, policing and public safety, and specifically that you see both sides of this issue. You see the community side as well as the police's side. And uh, I'll just ask you, how do you think about this and approach the problem that does the most good for both sides? Well, and I have to say, I do see both sides of it. Uh, I have a son who's had his own personal experience with the police. And as a black mother, I've had the talk. But I went on several ride-alongs with officers of color. And they said, Betsy, we wanna be able to go home at night safely to our families. And we just need the tools and resources that are available. And really when they take those uniforms off, they are the people that I'm representing in the community. Now, one thing that I think is important is the whole mental health piece, and we'll hear more about that, but our officers need just as much mental health support as the people they encounter. There's a lot of PTSD that can happen in that job. And my example is, if they encounter a horrific accident and they go home that night and they have to show up for work the next day, you can't tell me that that has not affected them and how that could possibly affect their decisions for that day and put themselves and others at risk. So it has to be, they are people too. There are some other things that we could look at that's being taken on by the state, but at the end of the day, there are people. And I will say they're good officers and they're not good officers. And I'll leave it at that. Well, this is a conversation that I actually wish we had time to to unpack more fully. In fact, there are a number of things that you've touched on that I feel like we've only skimmed the surface on, but unfortunately, we have limited time tonight. I will just ask you in closing as a final word, what sorts of help uh, can can folks provide for your campaign? You know what? Thank everyone who has already stepped up with financial support, but you know, feats on the grounds hands, calling, mailings, all those things that, you know, money can't buy. 
and really just being committed to the cause and spreading the word because I believe I have a vision to help get Spokane where it's trying to go. And I need you to help me make sure that we advance that vision for all of Spokane, not just District 2, but for all the citizens who live here. I really appreciate it. Spread the word. Do you have a, a website that we can uh, post up here? I do. I think it was just in the chat. Perfect. But electwilkerson.com. I always want to repeat that because not everybody's watching. Some people are listening. So anyway, uh, Council Member uh, Wilkerson, it has been such a pleasure getting to chat with you, not only tonight, but just kind of getting to know you. Generally, I want to wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank you. And good luck to all. Up next is Luke Jasmine III. He is the owner of Parkview Early Learning Center in North Spokane, president and founder of the Washington Child Care Centers Association, and co-executive director of Glow Children Early Learning Center. He currently serves as a commissioner on a police oversight committee, a tri-chair for the Washington State Chamber of Commerce Child Care Collaborative Task Force, a board member on an, uh, an organization dedicated to housing and a community-minded enterprises, co-executive director for North Northeast Youth and Family Services, and is a member of the city's housing subcommittee, Spokane Early Learning for All, Greater Spokane Incorporated, and the Association of Washington Businesses. Additionally, additionally, there's more. Luke serves on the Spokane Police Ombudsman Commission and numerous other local boards, and he is running for Spokane City Council in District 1, uh, in uh, Position 2, rather. Um, and, you know, Luke, I just have to say, reading off the ways that you're involved in your community, the question isn't, why are you running? for city council, but what took you so long, right? Yeah, uh, what, what took me so long is uh, the, the timing. And right now is the time. And Northeast Spokane, we need the investments and in infrastructure. As you heard from a tough act to follow, uh, council member um, Betsy Wilkerson, we need to take care of our elderly and our youngest of citizens uh, here our children. And uh, that's what I'm hoping to um, just work on with uh, many that are here right now to be able to solve. Let's get the North, Northeast the resources that it, it needs and it's desperately needed for a very long time. Well, I want to dig into all that, especially your commitment to, uh, to childcare and early learning. But first, maybe just tell us a little bit about your background and how it led to you running for office. So uh, looking at this past year, this COVID year, this was, I think, uh, the darkest time in a lot of people's lives. We didn't have that sense of community that we once had before. Uh, I couldn't go to my friend's house to, to say hi. There was a time when I didn't even see my parents. And uh, during this time, as a childcare provider, I, look, as, as an early learning provider, we see our families in a very intimate way. We see everything, all aspects of their lives. And we don't just get one set of families. We get families from all uh, spectrums uh, of life. And uh, to see that, you know, yes, we need affordability and accessibility. Uh, accessibility of childcare is a thing. But to see the housing issue, to see safety and what does safety mean to our community, to see uh, communities of color, which uh, here in the Northeast, we have the highest percentage of people of color uh, in, in our district. Uh, I just know that policy, if done right, can really impact the people that I serve, that a lot of people on here serve every day in a very real and tangible way. And that's what I want to be part and bring into to Spokane. Well, I love it. And you've touched on so many things that we will circle back to. But the first thing I want to drill down on is uh, so much of what you do in, as I said, child care and early learning. How did that become a priority for you? Yeah. So, look, I've always uh, been about family, uh, families and children. But uh, what it boils down to is look at how much is going through our K-12 system every single year. And every year we gotta put more money, more money, more money in our K through 12 system. And that's not to say that the, the workforce that does the job 
uh, of teaching and uh, really running our K through 12 system are important, but uh, I had the opportunity to do a mentorship program at Glover Middle School. And I remember I had a caseload of about 29 students and uh, they called them at-risk students, which I'm not a huge fan of, of that, that label, but uh, these were kids that uh, we saw signs of potentially dropping out. And this was middle school. And a lot of these kids, they were already tapped out. They already thought in their mind, look, you know what? I'm done. That's so young. And Exactly. And when you look at it, it starts in early learning. Right now, uh, data shows 75% of kids in Spokane are going into our K through 12 system unprepared, 75%. So if we put our resources there, we already know what the outcomes are gonna be later in life. And that doesn't just help the kids, which I think we all should, regardless of where you are politically, I think we all should be doing, but that that also helps taxpayers. So people will say, oh, well, I don't have kids. Well, you pay taxes. So if you're making sure that your investments are going in a place, tax dollars are going in a place where we're not spending more later down the road, uh, why not? And childcare is an infrastructure issue. And I'm glad that we have leaders right now on city council that know that I'm glad we have leaders in legislation that knows that uh, it's it's we need to make sure that we are putting the time and effort in early learning because yeah the outcomes they speak for themselves. You're talking about outcomes and Lou I saw your uh, your expression perk up there because I know outcomes are really big for you so uh, put a pin in that we'll definitely get to that when you and I uh, begin to to dis- our discussion but I just want to ask you very briefly Luke uh, you led a, a very successful advocacy campaign for the Fair Start for Kids Act and that was adopted by the legislature maybe just tell us a little bit about that and what Fair Start for Kids does and what it'll do for kids in Spokane. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say there's many people on this call right now that had their hands in making sure that Fair Starts was not only created, but passed through legislation. And this is the biggest legislation ever uh, for our state, $800 million for children and families throughout our state. So what does it mean specifically for Spokane families? That means that people who need Uh, to be able to go to work. I mean, think about, especially in the Northeast, we have a lot of single family households. They don't have all the supports that others have. And they need the supports like uh, access and affordability of childcare, like non-traditional hours to be able to go work and provide for their families and and, and have a better future uh, for their kids. So that is what uh, Fair Starts for Kids is allowing, and I would like to go further because uh, right now, if you're making over $20 an hour, which a lot of our essential workers are making, then you make just over uh, that, that qualification for the voucher system. We need to take care of our essential workers. We need to look out for them. And that is one big piece that I hope to bring Uh, to the city council, knowing the logistics and also being able to help pass policy for families and children. That's great. Yeah, you want to close that so-called donut hole. Um, I also want to talk briefly about affordable housing. Um, And I'm I'm, I'm going to move through some of these things rather quickly because uh, we're unfortunately going to bump up against the clock here in a couple of minutes. But I do want to get your your thoughts on some uh, very prominent parts of your your platform. So you sit on the uh, the city's housing subcommittee. What if you could talk just a little bit about your work there and what are some of the solutions that you see being proposed? Well, so like council member Wilkerson talked about, there is a lot of uh, silos right now. And one thing that I would love to be able to bring is just the ability to collaborate, the ability to bring people in and uh, really hope for a collective uh, goal that we all can reach. And again, when we talk about housing, it's not, a, it's not a, a Republican or a Democrat thing. It's a people thing. 
Right now, we need housing and we need affordable housing. So your question as far as what do I plan to do on the city's uh, housing subcommittee? Well, I plan to work with the very smart people that are on the committee as well to hopefully push and get to a solution. I also look to uh, take some of my work on the Habitat for Humanity board, maybe still a couple plays from their playbook and hopefully infuse uh, into uh, the work in the, the, the housing subcommittee. Because as you know, Habitat for Humanity, they've been doing this. They've yeah. been creating opportunities uh, for families to not only uh, build and, and have their own house, but to consistently stay there and, and build equity in it. So uh, those are my hopes. It's a great organization to draw inspiration from. I'm reminded that I'm going to botch this, but the Picasso quote goes along something along the lines of a great artists, average artists borrow, but great artists steal. So steal the great <laughs> ideas from Habitat for Humanity for sure. Um, I also want to touch on the issue of policing and public safety. Um, you also sit on the police oversight board. You're everywhere. Um, and you say that as a community, people need to make room for, quote unquote, multiple truths mm-hmm. on the issue of police. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah. So uh, again, uh, and I, I'm gonna keep referring to Council Member Wilkerson because uh, so she is actually one of my mentors and someone that I that I, that I look up to, a pillar in our community. Uh, but uh, like she was saying, I have had an experience where uh, I remember being with my daughter and we were driving, and uh, I got pulled over, and. Uh, I got pulled out of the vehicle and a lot of people say, well, don't you know your rights? In that particular moment, you're not thinking about your rights. You're just thinking, look, let me get outside of this vehicle. Let me do whatever this law, uh, police officer says so I can make sure I'm alive and I could be there for, for my family. Now, imagine my four-year-old child watching this. She still has that trauma. Anytime she sees a police officer, officer anytime she sees a gun if you talk to my daughter right now she's one of those people who's like no guns right so uh so nobody can erase that experience that i had just because they might not have the same experience but on the other end my sister is actually a police officer so i understand that behind that badge there is a person. And just like Councilwoman uh, 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 Wilkerson said, when they take off that uniform, they're just like all of us. So how do we work and create solutions? To me, number one, we need to have independent oversight of the police ombudsman. That's what the people overwhelmingly voted for. That's the first step. The second step, Let's help and grow police from our communities that reflect our communities because then they can build those relationships. And we know relationships are strong. Relationships span everything. And if we're able to do that, I think we'll see uh, a better relationship with with police officers. We'll see more people uh, raise their hands up to go and be in, in, in the police force. But... To me, it has to start with those two things. I'm, I'm just kind of processing what happened to you, and your perspective is singular. It is unique, uh, particularly given your experience, and then also uh, what happened, uh, well, the fact that your your sister is a police officer as well. It, it strikes me that you're uniquely situated to, to, to take the stance that you're taking here. Um, the last thing that I want to talk about before we move on is infrastructure. Uh, and it is my understanding that Spokane, I, I was just doing some research before we started, um, they're set to get more than $80 million in infrastructure funding from the American Rescue Plan. That is that is the number uh, that I believe uh, the council member was referring to earlier. Where would you like to see that spent? Yeah, so uh, several places. I know everybody's going to talk about housing. So I think uh, that's a no-brainer there. We can figure out how to work on zoning, how to work on creating more housing opportunities. Uh, But the other piece is, is, again, early learning. And we we have, uh, I think Lisa Brown was was on here, but uh, through the Department of Commerce, they're doing some great work in creating opportunities 
to be able to um, access and, and really expand um, the access to early learning. Uh, the other piece sticking to infrastructure okay. is broadband internet. Again, there's so many people, so many legislators on all levels working on that. So I would love to be able to be on city council and work to get that for the Northeast. Uh, think about how much uh, uh, opportunity that opens for the people in this community, the kids in this community. And uh, I'll end with what everybody is saying at the doors are the streets. We need to be able to address the streets. I feel like people have been talking about it for uh, well, tell us ages. What the, tell us what the situation so, is with the streets. Uh, those are some of the things that I would love to see. Oh, okay, with the streets. So right now we do have some work happening. So right now, uh, two streets uh, per year, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Lou or, or, or anybody else that's on here, but uh, two streets per year on the main arterials are being repaired. Uh, we're growing as a city. So I would love to be able to see more. And especially in the Northeast, we have the highest concentration of unpaved uh, roads here. So we really need to see that. Uh, like Betsy's saying there, traffic calming, potholes, we're hearing it all. And, and I want to figure out and work with uh, my fellow council members and, and um, uh, stakeholders to figure out how do we solve this? How do we give people what they've been asking for? What sort of help time. do you need with your campaign? So, uh, look, we've been fortunate enough to raise... Uh, over $45,000 so far. And that's that's money from a lot of people that are on this call right now. And I truly appreciate that because that allows me the opportunity to get in front of more people to let them know, hey, this is who I am. This is uh, what I plan to do. But look, you can help with, with phone banking. You can help by, there's nothing like going to somebody's door and being able to talk to them. So if you want to come and help out, Luke, uh, sorry, Jasmine, the number four, Spokane.com, uh, come on the website, uh, definitely uh, volunteer. You can call me. You want to be as approachable as possible, 509-981-5595. Give me a call. Let's figure out how uh, you can volunteer. And thank oh, you it's been it's been our pleasure. Thank you so I much for joining. It. And I would just say for radio listeners, uh, his name is spelled J A S M I N, and the rest of the URL is for the number four, and then Spokane.com. Luke Jasmine the third again. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And we will welcome next Zach Zapone. He is a teacher and public health worker. He was born and raised in the 3rd District where he is running, graduating from North Central High School, as did his grandfather. From there, he graduated from Georgetown, taught middle school in Kennewick, was a Fulbright scholar in Columbia, and then received a master's in public affairs and certificate in urban planning from Princeton. During the pandemic, Zach served the community with Spokane Food Fighters, which served 100,000 meals to people in need. Today, Zach works as a substitute teacher and public health contractor, working on projects to provide aid to those impacted by coronavirus and expanding partnerships to increase access to virtual doctor's visits. And he is running for Spokane City Council, as I said, in the third district. And I should also mention this is an open race. The seat has been vacated by Councilmember Candace Mum, who has termed out. Uh, Zach, welcome. We're so glad you could be with us. How are you tonight? Very good. Thanks for having me. We're, we're grateful that you're here. So, um, as I mentioned, you, th you grew up in the in the third district. You are you were born and bred. Tell us a little bit about your personal story and how that led you to run for office. Yeah, I, I grew up here and went to North Central, and North Central has had and will continue to have a lot of diversity. There's a lot of need in our community. Um, we have ranging from West Central community neighborhood, which is one of the most high poverty neighborhoods in the state. Um, to Five Mile and Indian Trail in Audubon, which has a lot more working class folks. And uh, I had that experience at North Central and that diversity and, and personal experiences with inequality. Um, so when I went to Georgetown University, uh, I wanted to see the world, get involved in politics and went to Georgetown, uh, but really experienced the inequality beyond our own city. Uh, I was one of three students from Eastern Washington at Georgetown in my room. It was one of 22 boys from an all-boys private school in New Jersey. I would come home and work at the McDonald's on Indian Trail, and my roommate would work on Wall Street. And so that 
inequality really um, opened my eyes to the experiences across the board and saw education as a pathway to overcoming that social mobility. So I came home uh, to Eastern Washington and taught middle school as part of Teach for America mm -hmm. and created a bunch of programs and raised standards and did a lot of great work in the middle schools um, or in the schools, but really saw that it wasn't just the schools. There's a lot of great people doing a lot of great work, but it wasn't just the schools that were impacting that opportunity. It was transportation and housing and healthcare, um, policing and, and everything around that the city does that impacts our schools, impacts our community and our families. Uh, so I left the classroom, got my master's degree in public policy at Princeton, made a quick pit stop at in Columbia teaching English. I really wanted to improve my Spanish skills and uh, see different experiences and got that and came back home after studying at Princeton to serve our community just in time to hit the pandemic. Uh, I, I, I think it's really, my experiences uh, have always been driven to come back home to serve our community. Even when I was living in Washington, D.C. or in Columbia, my phone was, or my, my watch was always kept on Spokane time. I often joke, it's mom time. That was always where I was thinking in my heart and was thinking about what skills can I get to serve our community here, knowing that there's a lot of need in our community. I wanted to go learn from our nation's experts and, and bring those skills and resources back here to our home where there are a lot of inequalities. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're touching on uh, something that when we spoke, you had mentioned uh, in many ways that your experience growing up, your experience teaching school uh, led you to see things through an equity lens, uh, both racial and economic. And as a council member, you would like to formalize racial and social justice in the policymaking process. So walk us through what that would look like. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to always to have that in the forefront, not just in your mind, but in your policymaking process, uh, equity and racial and social justice. No one person has lived experience that represents the whole community. It's really important to have diversity of representation on a council and the board in the process, but that alone isn't enough, just like uh, Councilwoman Wilkerson mentioned. And so one thing that I would do as a teacher is we would break down the data and analyze it, right? And look at how it's impacting uh, different populations, our English language learners, our special education uh, community, different um, uh, communities of color, uh, low-income students. And then I'd also do a reflection on and having people observe my own teaching and how I was doing my own discipline, right? It wasn't just uh, uh, just like, oh, great, we're, we're not suspending kids, but it's like, oh, actually, Zach, like in your classroom, how is it broken down by these different lenses? Um, so that's where it started. I think when it comes to the uh, policymaking world and what I would bring as a policymaker is really trying to formalize that. I'm, I'm participating in, in work at my uh, organization, people who are trying to figure out how to institutionalize that right now in our nonprofit work. And that's really looking through um, having uh, analysis and, and outreach and making sure that we go through a forum and say, did we hit all these different populations to have um, the outreach to that community, um, making sure it's a, a thorough process on all policies that we do. Uh, and that needs to be across the board, people of color, uh, our BIPOC communities, low-income communities, uh, different ability levels, all right? If you're rebuilding a park and you forget about people who have disabilities, then that's not being equitable. And so it's really just trying to institutionalize and formalize that process. And then it goes down to at the first level when these proposals are being developed and, and, and created, not at the last level when council decides, but in that whole process. Um, well, our, our, our uh, city hall workers, our department of parks workers, when they're going through the process and looking at redoing an intersection, are they incorporating that process into their policy? Uh, it really has to be down to that granular, granular level. Well, so let's talk about integration vis-a-vis uh, -vis some of your priorities, and we'll start with affordable housing. We know that Spokane is having uh, growth issues. It's my understanding there's some 2,000 people a month who are moving there, uh, and that some housing has doubled in price uh, recently. How is the city currently dealing with this need for housing, and what would you like to do differently, keeping that equity lens in mind? Yeah, uh, I, the main things I talk about, like everyone talks about, is public health and safety, housing and homelessness, and infrastructure support jobs. And they're all interconnected in ways like we talked about, and I think that's really important. When it does come to housing, 
uh, there's a lot of people being priced out of our market. We just saw this week uh, or over the weekend that Spokane has the highest uh, rental increases in the nation. Uh, we've been seeing astronomical increases in our housing prices. First time homeowners are having a hard time finding it. Seniors are getting uh, uh, pushed with increasing property taxes. And these are, it, it's frankly impacting everyone. Um, so ways to, to focus on uh, changing that is we have to look at both supply and demand, right? We need protections for renters, uh, eviction moratorium, continuing that, but also making sure we have protections for evictions. Um, for protections against rental rate increases so that we're not having these astronomical rate increases on rent. Uh, but then we also need to have a, an increase in the supply side. We need more development in our city. There's a lot of land that we can infill. The city has a centers and corridors plan that hasn't been followed. Uh, it doesn't make sense to develop in areas that don't have access to transportation. Uh, we don't want to continue to explode growth and and Indian Trail and Five Mile, when there's only access in and out through one road, uh, that becomes a public health and public safety concern. If there isn't a fire incident, uh, what are we going to do, especially with wildfires? It's a, a very tree area. And so we need to make sure that we're focusing inward, developing along the centers and corridors. Um, we need to be changing our density laws, uh, permitting process to make it more affordable, uh, focusing on uh, uh, fast-tracking those projects that increase density or affordability. Uh, we have a multifamily tax exemption that's supposed to be promoting affordability. Uh, when I was at Princeton, I wrote a paper about it, sent it to then council member Ben Stucker, our council president Ben Stucker, about changes that we can do to multifamily tax exemption to promote affordability. Right now, it was being built to, it was used to build Kendall Yards, which Kendall Yards is great and it creates a great asset in our community but it's using a tax exemption from the city that's meant to increase affordability and that's not creating affordability in our community. And so those are some of the, the, the different policy levers that we need to look at about how we can increase access to affordable housing and, and guarantee it for everybody. So people my age can continue to live here and people's kids can continue to live here because the fear is that they won't be able to afford to live in Spokane and all of our, our youth will have to move away to Seattle or Portland or California to be able to get ahead. And they should be able to stay home and continue to be successful in our community. Well, I, I hate to break it to people, but Seattle and California are much more expensive. So they, yeah. There are only different places to go. But, you know, as you're talking here, I am moved to uh, to relay something that you told me when we were preparing, which is, and in fact, you uh, reported this on your Facebook account, that the Realtors Association is spending some $50,000 on your race. And, Lou, I'm going to ask you about this, too. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, they're also spending another $50,000 in the first district against Luke, too. So we're seeing uh, over $100,000 being used in the city council race. Uh, that's a big concern, right? That's one special interest group that is having an outsized influence in a primary that, frankly, is a low-education primary. Right? It doesn't get a lot of attention in the news and the press and has low turnout. And so when you're able to have that much influence, it's deeply concerning uh, what is at stake for them? I think they frankly just think they can make a profit off the city. And that's a deep concern. Uh, I, there is, you know, common ground and it's important to find that common ground and work together, but not when you're trying to buy a city council race. And so uh, I've served this community and continue to serve it. Uh, I, I say I'm a teacher. I'm not motivated by money, uh, right? It's not the goal. It's about being connected to our community. It's about doing the outreach to individuals, uh, uh, knocked on thousands of doors and heard these concerns at people's doorsteps uh, for over a year now. And those are the people I serve, the voters, not the special interests. And uh, I think we also have to do our diligence and, and tell people right, that this is happening because people don't know what's happening. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I just think that's a big concern of, of the influence they're trying to buy. 
I have a couple more questions for you, and I know we're bumping right up against the clock. And Lou, please be, be assured that you will get equal time on all of this. Um, I want to ask you, because you just put out a position paper on this, um, Zach, uh, you know, and, 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 in, and in fact, homelessness is one of those issues that people are most seriously concerned about. And poll after poll after poll, uh, your four-pronged outline details how you would approach the problem. I'm hoping you can do this briefly because we are in a bit of a time crunch. Can you outline your four points very briefly? I can very, very briefly do it. Uh, I, I've studied homelessness from the experts looked at. There are things that we could do better here in Spokane. Everybody knows it's not working right. Uh, the mayor's office, the executive needs to carry out a, a stronger plan. The first prong is to make sure we keep people in the houses before they become homeless. That's the affordable housing, the eviction area. The second part is that we need to have an organized and comprehensive outreach program to our homeless population. Case management. We need to track what interventions have we done? What haven't we done? Uh, and have that coordinated across the city. Third thing is we need to make sure that people, uh, we get people off the street quickly and, and get them the resources they need. Uh, a lot of our homeless population is struggling with mental health and, uh, and substance abuse, and we need to get them into a housing first shelter uh, where they can get help with those resources. It doesn't work if they're not getting those resources uh, out on the street. And the last thing is then the transition to bridge housing out. Uh, we need to establish that independent uh, living that's affordable, not the $1,000 studio apartment complex, so or not a complex, apartment, yeah. uh, and make sure that it's affordable for folks to get out. I, I've done a lot of outreach to homelessness. I've been to shelters and, and, and worked on these issues, and I think it's really important to have council members who are going to be advocates for, for our, our communities in, in, on these committee meetings and in our how are you gauging the response that you're getting, um, both from maybe members of the city government, but especially from voters? What are people saying? It's across the board, bipartisan, like, makes sense, right? Like, these are people that you rarely agree with, and they're like, yeah, this is, like, a, a, a plan that makes sense, and it's based on research and best practices, and, and uh, that's how I guide my policy lens, right? It's all about focusing on what's the best practices, I'll be your policy wonk and nerd who stays up late at night reading about what other places are doing and advocating for it in City Hall. That's your, your job is to live your life. My job is to serve you and your community so you can live your life. Uh, and people, it, it resonates positively with them. Before we you know, let you go, I'll just ask you, are the, you've gotten a number of endorsements. Are there any, uh, one or two maybe, that are particularly meaningful to you? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a union member, a WA member, so... Any labor endorsement is very meaningful for me. A couple of big ones are uh, firefighters, local 29, SEIU 1199 Northwest, the multi-care health workers. Um, these are people that protect our community and serve our community. And those have been particularly meaningful. And then uh, finally, I'll just ask you, what do you need help uh, with in your campaign? Yeah, it's crunch time two weeks to the election. Uh, you know, my website is just my name, zackzapone.com, Z-A-C-K-Z-A-P-P-O-N-E.com for those uh, listeners. Uh, definitely can always use help. Donations never hurt. Feel free to donate, throw $20 our way, uh, but definitely show up and volunteer. We've got texting and phone calls and, and door knocking. And most importantly, is just contacting and word of mouth of people you know. Just reach out to three people you know remind them to vote and vote, 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 because it's a primary. Only about 25% of people will even vote. So yeah. share that with your friends and family, get them to vote. Uh, and then if you want to get more connected with the campaign, feel free to reach out. We really appreciate you taking the time tonight. Best of luck to you, Zach Zappone. And uh, finally, last but certainly not least, is Lucretia Hill. She is a business consultant with over 15 years in nonprofit, philanthropy, and business. She holds both a bachelor's degree in psychology and an MBA and has worked for the Boys and Girls Club of America. Additionally, she is board president of the Spectrum LGBTQIA2 Plus Center, and she sits on the Washington State LGBTQ Plus Commission's Economic Development Committee. She's also a board member of the Inland Northwest Business Alliance. And she is also running for Spokane City Council in the 3rd District. And you preferred Lou, so we will refer to you as Lou. Lou Hill, welcome tonight. How are you? Thanks. I'm great. Thanks for having me. We are so grateful to have you here. And again, thank you for your patience. Um, tell us a little bit more about your personal story, your background, and how it led you to, uh, to run for office. 
Well, I too grew up here in Spokane. Four generations of my family have called Spokane home. Although I did grow up in Luke's district, which is actually the most economically depressed zip code in our state. Um, I grew up there and I was a teenage mom and Spokane really afforded me a path for success. And I wanna make sure that that path stays readily available for people. When I left Spokane after I graduated from Eastern, I went to Vegas and worked for the boys and girls clubs there. And I did look around and think, oh my gosh, how are my kids going to achieve success? How will they access trade schools? How will they be supported to do that? And what Spokane really provided me, I like to say Spokane raised me, because in so many ways it provided me public transportation. I was a recipient of housing vouchers I understand what it means to be a single mom and talk to renters and be discriminated against. I know how, how important stable housing is for the well-being of a human. And I really want to make sure that those resources are readily available for all people here in Spokane. In addition to that, um, I really want to work with very diverse groups of people to find the solutions that our city desperately needs. Before we get into your priorities, uh, you and I had a long and detailed discussion about your personal philosophy for city government, and I just want to kind of delve into that a little bit with you. Uh, so first and foremost, you've said that you're interested in getting elected only to city government, not to the county, not to the state level. I'll just ask you, what is it about city government that appeals to you so much? To me, city government is a direct contact with humans and being able to work interconnected and collaboratively to find the solutions and do the work that we all need. And that's why I'm so interested. And I think that Spokane is a test city. We really have an opportunity in Spokane to be to be a guiding light in solving these same situations that are happening in cities throughout our country. And it saddens me that Spokane won't take a leadership role in seeing the outcomes that we, des we all desperately want, which are less people who are unhoused, which are healthy and happy citizens that are accessing opportunity. And, and I really believe that at the city level, we can get those things done. You know, in an age of polarization, it's um, it's it's refreshing uh, when when you can list some things that uh, that these are outcomes that you believe everybody uh, can can agree on. Um, it, one of the things that you uh, kind of leaned into was city government being more inclusive than it currently is. One of the things that you're a big advocate for is financial transparency, and this is related because you're pushing for what is called a community budget. So for those who aren't familiar, what is a community budget? How does it work? How does it bring members of the community into the discussion? I think a community budget will show us where we're spending money, how we're spending money, and what the return is to our citizens. And it will give them an opportunity to provide feedback. And what you're also hitting on is that I think that we use language and concepts that, that don't include all people. I tell a story of after graduating from college and coming home and chatting with my grandma and her looking at me and saying, I don't understand what you're talking about, Lucretia, and, and making me feel like I, I, I was trying to talk over her head. And I, I realized very quickly that we speak in a way that isolates people and doesn't bring people in. And I really think that we have an opportunity at the city level, especially when it comes to budgets, is to bring people in. And when I look at a citizen or community budget, um, for example, it could break down, um, it, it'll break down the cost of filling a pothole and how much was being spent for each visitor to the library. I think that those metrics are really important to make it easily accessible. I also go back to Spokane's sustain sustainability action plan. I think that one thing that it does really well and something I would like to see translated into a budget is it looks at the greenhouse um, reduction of greenhouse gases in addition to the social benefit the investment costs and the economic benefit. And I think when people really are able to see the economic benefit of our outcome, they're going to be more readily willing to spend money in those particular areas. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. As MD says, government systems really don't want community members poking around and asking questions. <laughs> so, uh, And that's really what citizen activism is ultimately all about. I mean, we say in Indivisible all the time, the most impactful thing you can do is run for office for that very reason. You know, you also talked about creating more efficiency uh, through what you call process and procedure. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. So obviously I come from operations, no matter whether I was with Boys and Girls Clubs, in philanthropy 
or at, you know, working in public health or um, working in my own businesses, I am a big believer in process and procedure. And it's not just about efficiency, it's about resiliency. When you have good processes, when you treat people well, you get a better outcome. And I don't know any businesses that don't spend time thinking about how their operations are running to ensure that they are getting the most efficient and resilient services that they can from their entity. And it's so funny. I always hear people talk about, oh, we want to run our government like a business. But I rarely see the, the philosophies or best practices associated with business instituted, which is training, putting people first, making sure that we have enough people on staff to do the job, because believe it or not, that actually creates cost savings. In addition, I do, you know, I'm sure you're going to ask me about infrastructure, so I'm just going to jump in. Yep. Um, I, I love that we're getting infrastructure money. This is going to put people to work. It's going to address our road issues. It's going to address our housing crisis. In, a different, in addition to that, it gives us an opportunity to look internally into a, how our systems run and create some better efficiencies and technology and communication that we desperately need. If we look at the concerns with our city right now, we are seeing a, an issue with human resources. We are seeing an, is, an issue with an operational need and it is not being filled, which will cost our city more money in the long run. And that means less money to the services that our citizens desperately need. Well, and so since you uh, anticipated the question, uh, I'll ask you the same uh, question that uh, that I asked Zach, which is, well, first of all, I, I will note that, that when, when we were speaking, you, you and you've just alluded to this, you, you, you think about infrastructure in a very expansive way. And uh, the, the $80 million that are coming from the American Rescue Plan, how and where would you like to see that directed? I think like everybody, you know, everyone on this call believes very much in housing. Without housing, we don't get to the other solutions that our, that our community members need. Um, in addition to that, um, aside from housing, it is getting people to work. It's fixing our roads. Um, it's fixing um, our transportation systems and maybe creating better transport transportation and more efficient transportation. Um, and, and so those, and when I also think about it, I think about it as how our cities run. I think that, you know, a lot of times people go to, instead of looking at the process as a procedure, they look at deregulation. And I think there's a confusion associated with deregulation and better resilient emergent processes and procedures. And I think those are the things as a city that we really need to look at. Technology has changed drastically in the last 10 years. As businesses, we, we invest a ton of money on how we communicate and how we use technology and people to get us where we wanna go. And I think there's a true opportunity with this infrastructure dollars to create some um, better efficiencies within our city government as well. And I will back up because you touched on housing and I wanted to ask you the same question that I asked Zach as well, which was the Realtors Association pumping uh, $50,000 into your race. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I don't think this is different than any other city. They feel like they can buy our city and they can buy our people to get what they want. And I'm not sure what they want. They're not always transparent about it. They obviously want to be able to build and sell houses and make as much money as possible. But in all actuality, we need good building solutions in addition to making sure that that we are not allowing people to make decisions for our community without us involved. You know, I say a lot of times when it comes to policy, nothing about us without us and impact and in, impact matters. Your intent can be one thing, but if it, the impact is different, we have to be responsible for that. And so, um, you know, they can they can continue to spend money, but you know what? It makes a big difference when you're the one knocking on the door instead of just hiring, you know, spending $20,000 to hire people to do it. Or, you know, just focusing on media when you can actually have authentic and trusted relationships with community members. I want to shift gears entirely and uh, tie all this together with a discussion on uh, policing and public safety. Um, you've said that the city, you believe the city needs to look at alternatives to traditional policing. We know that there are a lot of models being explored uh, both here in the state and nationwide. What would you like to see explored uh, in Spokane? So I would like a different response to different needs. And I've been, I've said this throughout my campaign that uh, policing is not always the solution we have a domestic violence call and to be quite frank history shows that policing showing up at a domestic violence call does not change the outcome for that family 
And we need to make sure that we have resources available, mental health services. And when I think of infrastructure, I also think investing in better mental health services for families. And you know, if, if there's a 911 call, a police might not always be the solution for that family or that person in need. I'm also looking at our cop shops. Our cop shops are an amazing opportunity to staff them with social workers, develop deep relationships with humans and move them into the treatment and the resources that they desperately need. Can I and ask a lot you what you mean? They, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can you ask, ask what you mean by cop shops? Oh, so Spokane has invested quite a, minute, uh, quite a bit in uh, local neighborhood cop shops. And usually they, you know, they'll do some zoning um, reporting, like if, for instance, if you have an individual living in a garage or something of that nature, you can go to the cop shops and report it. Um, but I think they could take their services a lot further, especially when you start looking at East Central specifically. We have individuals who are not living in, in houses and developing relationships is the best way to move people into stable housing and to move them eventually into the services that they want, whether that's um, substance use services or, or mental health services. Without the foundation of housing, we can't help people make better choices for their lives. One last question, and this is about the economic recovery. You said in an article recently that the city missed the boat, basically, that, that there were a number of opportunities that they had in front of them to help small businesses recover from the pandemic, and they failed to. Talk about, A, first and foremost, set the stage for us. Talk about the importance of small businesses to Spokane. Small businesses keep money in our city, and small businesses keep families fed and it keeps families fed longer because those dollars stay here. Um, they could have done a lot more in investing in our small businesses. Our small business owners are hurting. We watched our small businesses close. We watched our favorite gyms close. We watched restaurants close. And they could have done a lot more to create sustainability. In addition to that, I do. Um, I worked with the Mac, Carl Maxey Center specifically on the Black Business Association. And since then, we've created a collaboration of all the small business associations, INBA, um, the Hispanic uh, Business and Professional Association, um, AHANA, um, CDI. All of these entities have come together to create a coalition to make sure that our small businesses are supported. In addition to that, we were able to also to work on Live Local. Live Local would have been an amazing opportunity for the city to co-invest with our small businesses to make sure that small businesses got the attention and the resources that they desperately need during the pandemic. This is a much longer conversation, and you know, unfortunately, it would it's, it would seem with the Delta variant, we're not quite out of the woods yet. So this may be certainly something that is facing a future Spokane City Council. Um, but unfortunately, our, our evening is just about to wrap up. So I will just ask you: You've gotten a number of endorsements on your website. What are one or two that, for you, uh, are particularly resonant and meaningful? Um. Well, it would probably be UFCW21. And I only say that because that's our grocery store workers. And my son is a grocery store worker. Um, my son, my oldest son is on the autism spectrum. And he has worked at the grocery store since he was a junior in high school. This job also helped him. Um, it helped him. Uh, he went to community college and went through photography classes. And he was doing that all while he was supported by his grocery store. My son was an essential worker during the pandemic. And so for me, on very personal reasons, that just kind of has a, a special tinge for me. Um, grocery stores are now are a big part of our life, obviously. And next would be the Spokane Housing Alliance Fund. I believe strongly in housing. And, I, and, and the model that Zach speaks of is the model that's adopted by even veteran services. These immediate services, these wraparound services, they are essential to get people where they need to go so that they can benefit from the other opportunities our community could offer them. One last thing then, how can listeners and viewers help your campaign? Well, they can definitely, um, as far as fundraising, you know, coming from nonprofit world, that um, that was a fun place for me to revisit. So we've been doing a pretty decent job on fundraising, but we can always use more money and more individuals. I'm really excited about the individual donors that I have brought to my campaign. There are people who have donated to my campaign who have never donated to a campaign before. And I think that that's exciting. We need politicians and people who in public office who get people excited about being involved. And, and I think that that's really a, kind of a missing piece is getting more people to feel like 
city government is a place for them and a place for them to have a conversation and, and to be able to visit whenever they have that free time because our families are very busy. Um, and so I also need some doorbelling. So continue knocked on thousands and thousands of doors, but we're going to continue up until um, we can't do that anymore. And my website has been dropped. That's www.lufouryou.com. Um, you can also find my phone number and my email address on the website. So if you have any questions, please reach out. Um, and I'm, I'm very accessible and available for conversations and for input and how people want to see their community um, help more people have access to a healthy, happy, and safe life. I thank you so much for your time and your candor and your perspective. Lou Hill, best of luck to you. Thank you. And that will do it. Thank you again to Councilmember Betsy Wilkerson, Luke Jasmine III, Zach Sapone, and Lucretia Hill. Special thanks to Petra Hoy, Jessa Lewis, Danielle Garvey-Reeser, Cynthia Hamilton, Robin Gittleman, Louise Bathe, and Kevin Jones. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. The email address for the pod is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The web address is indivisiblepodcast.org. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at Demcast usa.com special thanks to Lori Caldwell and as always my thanks to you for listening we'll talk to you next time bye